Blessings, Divine Nobodies fam. You know, one thing that Jen and I are huge advocates for are developing ways in which we can improve our lives through making spirituality and wellness not just a topic of conversation, but a lifestyle. You know, we live in a very fast-paced, hyper-accelerated world, and so it's important to find healthy ways that we can optimize that life. Let me tell you guys, I discovered this brand, Happy Hippo, a few years ago, and it was during a time where I just couldn't handle the overtly stimulating effects of coffee anymore. I just couldn't do it. But I still wanted a natural way to put a little pep in my step, if you know what I mean. Whether you're someone that needs a lot of energy throughout the day or someone that just likes to relax at home with a nice book, you know, nestled in your hammock, cuddling with your partner, all the things. Happy Hippo has quality herbal products meant to enhance and optimize all areas of the life you currently live. They offer a wide variety of lab-tested, GMP-approved croton powder, capsules, and extracts from around the world. They have products that can promote well-being, inner peace, also products that can complement a productive and busy life. You know, if you're like Gary Vee and you just like to crush it at life, Happy Hippo will get you there, guys. So if you're curious about this magical plant from Southeast Asia, because that's where it comes from, just visit their website at happyhippoherbals.com and search their huge catalog of Katam strains to find one that resonates with you. Trust me, guys, you'll find one if you believe. If you're new to Katam and aren't sure where to start, well, Happy Hippo Herbals does a great job of providing descriptions for each product so you know exactly how it will benefit your life. Go to happyhippoherbals.com and use promo code DivineNobodies at checkout for 15% off your first order. That's promo code DivineNobodies at checkout for 15% off your first order. Trust me, fam, you'll be feeling all kinds of vibes. Thank you for listening to the Divine Nobodies Podcast with Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. If you enjoyed this episode, please like and subscribe so you never miss a show. If you're on Instagram, please follow us at Divine Nobodies Podcast and join our ever-growing community of lightworkers and spiritual visionaries. Together, we can raise the frequency of our planet and bring in a new era of awakening and understanding. Welcome to our tribe. And now your hosts, Eric Ajna and Jennifer Lynn. Thank you for tuning in to Divine Nobody's Podcast. I should have spoken to the host or the intro person prior to the podcast, let her know that Jen's not actually going to be making it here with us today. Unfortunately, she is out sick. She thought it was strep throat, but she just informed me within the last couple hours that it is actually COVID. Can you believe that? And today is actually, what, January 15th? It is the start of Mercury retrograde. Of all times for it to happen, it would make sense for it to happen that time, right? So Mercury's like pretty much Mercury retrograde, giving her the middle finger. And her birthday is on the 24th. Hopefully she'll be over it by that time. But let's all send some positive vibes out to Jen. Happy healing. Jen, I have my Enjoy the Journey cup here in my hand. I'm going to pour a little bit on the floor in my Persian rug. Just in your... Hold on. Almost, almost got it on my cat. Sorry. And in, in, in your honor, in your honor, Jen, uh, poor thing. She sent me a message earlier today and she's just saying like, wow, she, she didn't, she didn't, let me just preface this. She didn't just say she got COVID. She got strep throat and COVID at the same time. Can you believe that? But in true warrior fashion, I know Jen's going to be fine. She's going to battle through it. I'll keep you guys updated. Hoping she'll be on the podcast next week. Mercury was just like Gandalf and just sort of like Lord of the Rings. She's just like, oh, thou shalt not pass. So Jen, if you're listening, pouring out all the all the love and vibes into you. And we're going to do this episode in your honor, in your honor, Jen. So with that said, thank you guys all for, for joining us. We have a special episode today. We have a guest in the studio. We're going to be talking about a subject that's really, really important to me. One that we've covered before on the podcast one time before with a fellow named Sam Kempner. 
And he was uh, speaking from the sort of divine masculine perspective, but we have something really special because we have a young lady that's going to be giving us the sort of divine feminine perspective, but also because this person is, her profession is in, in HSP and empath work, it'd be nice to dive deep in, ask her some questions and get her perspective on some of these things. So the book that I'm familiar with is The Highly Sensitive Person by Dr. Elaine Arian. This is a book that I had read a while back, and I learned a lot of really interesting things about HSPs and empaths, which is a really fun fact before we get her on the pod. 15 to 20% of our population are HSPs. Can you believe that? And at least 70% of them identify as introverts. This is an interesting stat because that means there are 30% that actually identify as extroverts, which boggles my mind in a lot of ways because we tend to identify them as introverts. So we'll ask our guest a little bit more. Maybe she can give us some clarity on this. So without further ado, I'd like to introduce her. She is a life coach for empaths and highly sensitive people. In her work, she teaches clients how to regulate their nervous system, heal themselves, use their spiritual gifts, and step into their fullest potential in life. She specializes in shadow and inner child healing work and uses mindfulness practices and meditation to help her clients become more aware. Love it. Love her already. And uh, aware, regulated, and empowered. She has a bachelor's degree in psychology, so she doesn't fuck around. And she's also pursuing her master's degree in transpersonal therapy. Everybody, let's welcome Sarah Nicole. How you doing, Sarah? <laughs> I'm doing great, Eric. I'm so happy to be here with you today. And yeah, so honored to be invited onto your show. Thank you for taking some space and some time out. Again, we're going to do this episode in honor of Jennifer, in honor of Jennifer. And yes, before we get started, I wanted to ask you, you're actually, she's calling us from Colorado, right? You're in Colorado? Yeah, I'm in Colorado. What is it like living in Colorado? Because the way that I imagine it, I imagine it's almost like Tom Cruise in the movie Legend, just wandering through the forest, just hanging out with fairies, talking <laughs> shit to trolls that hang out underneath the bridges and smoking a bowl with the tree people. Is it like that? <laughs> You know, I think that it can be like that if you live more in the mountains, which is definitely my goal eventually. I live um, on the Front Range, and it's absolutely beautiful here. I'm actually from here, originally born and raised. Um, so, yeah, the mountains are quite magical, and um, wanting to get more into the mountains so I can enjoy the magic of the mountains a little bit more. I think being on the Front Range, it's it's a little bit harder to get out there, but um, definitely feel blessed to live in such a beautiful part of the country. And it seems to be a really good place for, especially somebody that is more than, more than likely an HSB, because you have a lot of solitude, you know, you, have, you get a lot of time to spend uh, in introspection on your own in nature, which is something what I gathered from your IG. Um, that's kind of how we met. It seems that you spend a lot of time in nature. Yes. No, nature is the ultimate healer, I believe. And I think being highly sensitive and having, you know, highly sensitive nervous systems, it's really important for us and all people, in my opinion, but to really connect with the earth, to ground ourselves. Um, we can kind of recycle some of the energy that we hold in our bodies to the earth and, and kind of suck up healing earth energy. Um, and yeah, I think just being in nature is a great way for us to learn more about ourselves as well and to take that time to um, go within. I absolutely love that. There's something like really beautiful that happens in nature when you're amongst it, where it sort of like just starts to regulate your nervous system. All of the sort of mind chatter that, that, that you had maybe prior to stepping into like a forest just somehow seems to alleviate itself and go away. And that's the one thing that I think is really beautiful about nature is that it's not this process of becoming or it's not like this sort of strategic curriculum that you have to put in place in order to enjoy it. All you have to do is just step into nature and it just has its way with you, you know? Yeah, I love how you say that. It's not a process of becoming. 
And yeah, I think that some of the things that plague us most as humans, I think at the root is from our disconnection to nature and from our disconnection to what it really means to be a human. And so at least on my journey, I think, yeah, nature has been a huge a way for me to connect back to myself and to what it me- means to actually be a human. You know, we're so, we walk around so disconnected from the earth, um, from you know, wearing shoes and not ever like having our feet on the ground to living in houses and with air conditioning and heating. And yeah, I think at least for me, it's a huge part of my journey and something that I, I want to bring into my healing work um, with my clients as well. Yeah, I absolutely love that. And this is one thing that always comes to my mind when we talk about nature is I love that it doesn't have a story. Like when you walk out into the forest and you have all of these issues and you have all these problems that we maybe want to walk into a forest in order to try and mitigate or try and alleviate. I think the beautiful thing about nature is that it doesn't have a story. If your boyfriend broke up with you, if your girlfriend cheated on you and you walk out into nature, it's like nature is not going to participate in the way that maybe like a good friend would be and give you advice. It's just going to say like, hey, immerse yourself into the peace and the tranquility of this moment. It naturally Mm -hmm. just takes you out of the space of over-identification with anything that the ego may bring into your space. And it's just sort of like all of that disappears, you know? Mm. Yeah, that's so beautiful. Yeah, it doesn't have a story. And I think we have so many stories in our mind around that kind of keep us from reality, that keep us from experiencing life as it actually is, right? Because just the way our brains are, it's hard. It's something we have to fight against as humans. But you're so right. There's no, it just is. Um, nature isn't like there's not judgment and there's not I think that's where I also see like light and dark um, death and birth like when you walk in a forest you see how a fallen tree is like becoming compost for the trees that are coming to life or for the other trees or for what other plants are around it and it kind of I don't know it, it gives life another perspective like what is death really and who are we really and yeah I think there's I, I, my hope is that people spend more time in nature. And I think that if everyone did spend more time in nature, whether it's under the stars or in the forest or just really reflecting in nature, I think the world would be a completely different place. <laughs> I agree. And that's really beautiful. And it, this, this very conversation is something that like always sparks my interest as a Libra because me, I'm all about balance. That balance includes the polarities in life, right? The life and death. And there was something that you actually quoted on your IG that I'm going to read it off really quick before we get into the HSP, HSP stuff, because there's a lot to cover. But now that you actually brought this up, I thought that this is a really, really beautiful quote from yours. You're a really, really amazing writer, by the way, but I wanted to read this off. It says, there is no rebirth without death, no light without darkness, no transformation without suffering. You can let your suffering defeat you or you can rise above. You can use your suffering as a catalyst for transformation. Some of my darkest days have also been my most transformative. If you're going through a dark time, keep going. This too shall pass. And you can use this time to be reborn, be transformed, and to step into the life that you truly want, which kind of speaks to what you're saying. And I think this is a really beautiful observation because in our culture, at least in our Western society, death is sort of like uh, something people don't talk about or even consider. But it's one of the most mm-hmm. just inevitable facts. There, there, there are very little things that we know for certain in life. Death is one of those things. You know, people act like they don't. But the wonderful and beautiful thing about nature is that when we pay attention to it in the same way that you were, that you were talking about, you see life and death and rebirth everywhere around you. You know, you have the seasons, you have the plants that die and grow, you know what I mean? Even the cells inside of our body at a molecular level are dying and being reborn every single day. It's interesting how nature can do that and also that how, how people maybe sometimes miss that, you know? 
Yeah, so true. First of all, thank you for the kind words, Eric. That means a lot to me. But yeah, I think that death is, like you said, it's something that we don't talk about. It's something that we fear um, going into, that we fear reflecting on, because um, there's unknown, right? But yeah, I think, at least for me in the awakening process, it's kind of, that's been one of the catalysts in my own life, like having a lot of death around me. So I actually, I've done a lot of work as a caregiver in the past and specifically with people um, on hospice and kind of in the last periods of their life. I've just, from a young age, I felt like the universe just kind of like pulled me towards that and um, kind of taking a break from that right now because I, you need a break from that realm sometimes. But um, yeah, I think asking those questions is so important and it's also can be terrifying, I think, at the same time. Yeah, soul tribe. And I totally recognize what you're saying because I did hospice work for a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Awesome. I worked for this and company what? called uh, Seasons Hospice and Palliative Care in Glendale. And this all happened as a result of a near-death experience that I had when I was younger, in my early 20s. And that got me into hospice work and uh, doula type of work. So I know exactly what you're talking about, sitting alongside people that are passing away. It is one of the most humbling, beautiful, and graceful experiences that you can experience. So I'm super grateful that you that it, your practice had brought you down that path because there aren't a whole lot of people that have the courage to go into that realm and be sort of like that mediator between life and death. It takes a very specific type yeah. of person and it's it's uh, beautiful when you have people that act as sort of like the mediators between this realm and that one. You become sort of like a swinging door. Definitely, yeah. And I'm also equally thankful for you, Eric, and the work that you've done. I'm super interested to hear more about your experience in that sometime. Um, it's Yeah, it is rare to meet meet other people who have done that work. I think especially younger people. But. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's one of the, I think you're one of the only people that I've met that have actually done that. So cheers to that. We can probably spend a few hours on talking about that. Maybe we can save that one for another episode, or maybe we can touch on that a little later. But as to start the podcast, we wanted to pose a question to our guests, but also for our listeners, considering we are the Divine Nobody's podcast, I wanted to ask you how you embody your divinity, either daily or just in life. How I embody my divinity. I love that question. I think that a big part of it for me is connecting with my higher self through meditation, through visualization, connecting to the me that is like behind the ego, the like actual me, right? And I think that doing meditation and sitting and practicing has been one of the biggest ways that I've been able to peel back the layers of the ego and the layers of the persona and kind of get to, wow, there's like a divine spark here. And then being able to kind of see that in everything. I do think nature is a big, a big part of that, being able to, once we see the divine in ourselves, we're able to see it all around us um, and connect with it in so many different ways. That's really, really beautiful. That's one of my main practices as well. Something that I like to make, I always happen in, within reach, you know, this idea of the I am that exists prior to whatever name that we've been given. We can also call that the Mm -hmm. ego, the conditioning, which is a really, really strong thing in our culture to over-identify with the sort of fluctuations of ego, but to really, really ground yourself into a space of I am, which is just that knowingness, not knowing, but like a knowingness, something that comes before all of the things in which we've been taught. And I think that's a really beautiful practice to really embody. So that's beautiful. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. We had... A list of different things we wanted to consult with you because you're a therapist. This is something that you do on a regular, everyday basis. We see your posts. They're really, really beautiful. Still a lot of questions are surrounding this, which is, you know, HSP, highly sensitive people, as well as impasse. 
Can you give us in our audience just an idea of what is an HSP, what is an empath, what is the difference between the two, and whether or not they're actually connected? Yeah, absolutely. That's a great, great basis for our conversation. Um, so I would define like being highly sensitive or HSP. It has more to do with like the nervous system is the way that I look at it. Um, basically having that highly sensitive nervous system, a way to look at that is like our threshold for like for senses and for being able to have awareness around like something we hear or taste or smell or feel, um, whether it's like a a feeling like an emotion or actual like you know physical feeling the threshold is lower for us so I think in general highly sensitive is more like you are your nervous system is just able to detect what is sometimes a little bit less detectable for other people um having that again sensitivity right like we can pick up on things so to me that's really what being highly sensitive is more about and then the empath side I think that being an empath you are highly sensitive, but it takes it to another step where it has more to do with like energetics and like emotionality. So sensitive to be able to pick up beyond just the physical senses, but into like feeling someone's energy or vibes or the vibes of animals or plants or the earth. Um, so I think with empaths, there's definitely like an intuitive level there where it has to do again, yeah, with um how do we pick up which is not physical? Um, and again, that's just kind of my way of viewing it or my understanding of it. But Yeah, that's a really, really good distinction to make. It seems like one is more physiological. Uh, I think I, know, I heard it um, being referred to as sensory process sensitivity, which is more of like a genetic mm-hmm. trait, right? Which, like what you're saying is like biological. It's like somehow the universe equipped you with like these HD headphones and this sort of like human suit that allows you to just be super, super sensitive to everything around you. And you're saying that empaths send more of like an energetic sort of intuitive sensitivity, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, I'm curious, Eric, you referred to yourself as an HSP and would you also identify as an empath? I would identify as an empath, definitely. Energetically, for sure. And I definitely have some HSP qualities, but this is something that has been a part of my practice for a long time. One wouldn't think, or at least if I were to go five, 10 years back into the past, would have never ever thought of having a podcast where I would be talking about these sort of spiritual themes. So this is something that sort of slowly unraveled over time. And uh, just like you, you know, you have practices of how to deal with a really intense world, you know, uh, mm-hmm. feeling comfortable being around other people's energies, but uh, specifically energy that you're not, uh, maybe don't know very well, you're not as familiar with in like unknown type of settings, um, having anxiety or nervousness when it comes to public speaking or connecting with other people. And um, also just being really hypersensitive to sounds, right? I'm actually a sound healer by trade right now, aside of the podcast. This is something that I've been doing for, for years as a sound healer. Mm-hmm. And the reason why I was inspired to do that is because a part of the near-death experience that I had a while back, a lot of that experience had to do with sound and hearing things oh, wow. and hearing beautiful music. So a lot of my objective um, became about using sound as a way to bring people into this natural state of spe- peace that I felt during my near-death experience. A lot of what mediated or sort of like became more of like my phoenix arising out of the ashes moment was that near-death experience. When I came back from that experience, I was still hypersensitive, probably even more so than before. But there was this understanding of the, the sort of collective energy of the universe and this feeling of safety and love. And 
a lot of those things that I used to be used to get me stressed out or used to have anxiety about just sort of subsided, you know. So, mm-hmm. yeah, one thing that I'm still still very much uh, very sensitive to is sound. I can hear sound literally everywhere. I can pick up certain unaudible decibel frequencies in the air. There are some wow. that still annoy the shit out of me sometimes, but I move through it. You know? Yeah, that's incredible, Eric. I would love to hear about your near-death experience sometime. I feel like that can be such a huge transformation. I love that you're bringing that into the work that you do and the healing work that you do with people. And wow, that's just, yeah, that fascinates me. And I do think from my experience, like working with different clients as well as being highly sensitive myself, obviously, it does seem we all have different. It's not, you know, one size fits all. Like sometimes it sounds like sound to you is something that it's almost like a superpower, like you really hear things really well and maybe really clearly and maybe, you know, you think about everything's vibrations, right? And that's the kind of vibration that maybe your system is kind of like attuned to, yeah. whereas like, yeah, I think we all have, can have different um, gifts in that way, but yeah. that's really incredible to, to hear. Thank you for sharing. Yeah. That, and I like how you said it was like a superpower. Because the one there's a difference between how I looked at HSP or empaths prior to that experience and as I progress through my life is that in the beginning it's almost like you're like a child in this world trying to understand what all these crazy feelings are, right? And there's so much intense energy. You're just sort of like this ball of exploding light. And once you maybe get into a spiritual mm-hmm. practice like meditation or even have a near-death experience, it seems like source points you in the direction where you start looking at these energies as a superpower. You know, I mm-hmm. I noticed uh, when I came back from that experience, I started developing more of sort of like clairaudient type of abilities. That can be considered as a sort of HSP type of quality. It's sort of like channeling the intensity and the, the sensitivities into something productive, you know? Yeah. I wanted to ask mm-hmm. you, do you think do you think that somebody's childhood, and I'm, I'm thinking of epigenetics. I'm going to see if I can put this in the right words, but, you know, when I think of the idea of life and death and rebirth is maybe a little different than maybe some people look at it because at what point do we stop being our parents considering we came from them, right? So at what part, Mm -hmm. do you think there's any part of being an HSP or an empath that is inherited from family? That's a great question. I would, um, you know, I haven't looked into much of the research around like that, if there's like a genetic tie, but I definitely wouldn't be surprised. And I, I think just based on like life experience and what I've observed, it seems like there definitely is a tie to at least for me, I think both of my parents are highly sensitive. So, um, and it makes sense if with the highly sensitive thing, right, we're talking about that more like physiologically and the nervous system. So it would make sense if that was an inheritable trait um, to have a highly sensitive nervous system. Yeah, and I think that, again, you know, when we look at psychology, it's like nature and nurture. So, but I do think that there is definitely a nature part of that, that we kind of come into the world with. Um, the predisposition to having a highly sensitive nervous system. Oh, yeah, I love that. There was a guest that we had a while back named Alexander Ohm. He was talking about divine masculinity, but he was talking about uh, this idea of past lives affecting the current life that we're we're in. So he's saying a lot of like the Mm -hmm. maybe anxiety or maybe HSP or even empathic type of tendencies that we have can sometimes or also be linked to traumas that we've experienced in past lives. One of our guests mm-hmm. talked about like, oh, a woman that maybe is predisposed to being HSP or empath was possibly somebody that faced persecution as a witch from a past life or uh, maybe a man that was like in the war, like maybe he was in like the World War One or something and he died, you know, in a really, really tragic sort of way. And so we somehow inherit that trauma through our family lineage. And so sometimes mm-hmm. when somebody just suddenly has this unknown anxiety that they feel, 
it could potentially be linked to past lives. I think that's like a really interesting mm-hmm. thing. There's really no way to prove that, but it makes sense when we're looking at the idea of reincarnation and how it influences us as we move on different yeah, lives. Definitely, I love that. I love that idea of um, past lives or something I've been exploring this last year and actually I'm getting certified in doing like past life regression because it's been such a powerful thing for me to learn about like my own past lives and it makes things make a lot more sense when you realize wow like I've lived other lives and there's certain things that you know that I'm healing from from lives before this so I definitely think that's such an interesting thought and yeah, I definitely think that being an empath or highly sensitive person could be tied to past lives. Um, something that I've kind of wrestled, not wrestled with, but just kind of uh, examined or thought about before is like the idea of kind of like karma and coming into the world for speaking to empaths specifically. I think a lot of us come into the world with like past karma that we've kind of integrated. So like, For example, it seems that a lot of us come to the world like already having this like idea that other people are really important and that we want to, we treat other people the same that we treat ourselves, sometimes more like better than we even treat ourselves, which can be a trauma thing too. But I do think that there's like this wisdom, like I'd call it being an old soul that is kind of a part of being an empath or developing into an empath. And for me, it feels like yeah, lessons that maybe I've integrated. Like, I feel like I've been here for a very long time, like, yeah. and reincarnated many times. And I think that this time as being an empath, it's like, I'm there because I've had a bunch of lessons. And maybe that's why sometimes it feels so alien to be an empath or alien to be a highly sensitive person in this world is because, you know, there's other souls that haven't learned the lessons that maybe we've already kind of integrated. Um, so, yeah, I don't know if that sounds like egocentric, but it is no. something that at least rings true for me. No, it makes sense. And and I was talking about at the beginning of the podcast, like there's this difference between this sort of intrinsic knowing and then it's sort of egoic knowing, like an intellectual understanding of things, like what the ego has. And I always wonder, like people always pose this question, like, okay, if I'm not my ego and if I'm not my personality, then does that mean I'm just sort of like this person sitting in a corner not doing anything. Like, who am I if I'm not my story? And uh, Mm -hmm. I always refer to like this deeper knowing. Well, what is that deeper knowing? I think that deeper knowing is exactly what you're talking about. Somehow we're born into the world just loving in the way that we do. It's something that we can identify as something that hasn't been taught. There are just certain qualities that people have that you know didn't come from somebody else's experience or somebody else's curriculum. And you can't explain that. And uh, maybe like Zen Buddhism will tell you that you don't need to explain it. You just have to be that, right? There's just this mm-hmm. natural feeling of beingness and intuition that happens when you're not using your ego. So I guess the rough uh, uh, short of my story is that like, if we are not operating from our ego, there's still very much a very powerful aspect of ourselves that is still working. And I think it's the part of uh, ourselves that you're talking about because I totally, totally identify with um, what you're saying. But bringing it back into maybe this more 3D outside of the, the past lives, one thing that you did mention in um, your bio is your experience from your childhood and how you grew up, which I imagine is kind of what inspired you to go down this path. So can you talk a little bit about how your past and how your childhood influenced the work that you're in? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I I think I did kind of come into the world feeling like an old soul like and being just extremely sensitive and extremely empathic and 
unfortunately had a lot of trauma early on in my life um, with my family and addiction and um, abuse of different kinds in my family. And I think that, you know, having being in a family that was so wounded um, and taking on so much of that into my system as an empathic kid and not having any education or any idea of why do I feel everything, you know, so deeply. I remember just even from like being four years old, I feel like I was depressed at like four years old because I just felt everything so deeply and I couldn't even intellectualize it at that point um, of my life. But I felt it and I was so sad and everything just, yeah, everything felt wrong. And I, I didn't know, like from a young age, I just remember feeling like, why am I here? Why am I a human? Just feeling disoriented. And I know a lot of us seem to have that story, a lot of us empaths, which is really interesting to me. Um, but then, you know, I think in my teenage years, just being very depressed, um, using drugs and alcohol to numb because not knowing why do I feel so much? How can I function in the world and having to resort to, you know, ways of numbing my system, ways of shutting off my empathic abilities, my intuitive abilities. And then, you know, honestly, one of the main things that started to wake me up and started to kind of lead to some healing was an incredible experience I had where someone told me I was an empath without, that's a whole story in itself, but learning that I was an empath and that in itself was kind of a mystical experience. (laughs) But um, having like, language around that for me and then starting to educate myself and that led me down the path of like studying psychology and at that point it was still very much coming from like more of a atheistic view of the world and a very cynical view just kind of trying to okay well I'm going to educate myself I'm going to try to learn everything I can about the mind and try to make my life better and but being learning as an empath was really a pivotal moment for me because it gave words to something I had been experiencing my whole life and helped me understand like there's nothing wrong with me like I just have this I'm different my nervous system is different my um, and I do have the ability to feel and then I started going towards like not shutting that off and wanting to actually foster that and make a safe space for that in my life and that can be really hard to do in our society but I think just doing a lot of healing work um, with myself and also having coaches therapists um, mentors in my own life that have helped me and yeah and then having some really incredible like mystical experiences that have opened my mind and my eyes to going beyond like being an atheist and going beyond like my scholarly mind into like knowing that I don't know anything at all and um, being just really committed to this journey of being a human and waking up and wanting to be there for others that are on a similar journey because I know like the education that I got and the tools that I got and the healing I got was you know so life-changing and I wish I could have gotten that sooner and so I just want to be somebody Like, I kind of view it as, like, I want to be somebody that I wish I had, like, my whole life. Like, I want to be there for people and help them know they're not alone and help them learn about themselves and grow and heal because I think we're all so deserving of that and our world will be a better place the more that we all are able to heal. Yeah, that's really, really beautiful. And I'm a really, really firm believer in the sort of, like, a Buddhist perspective of bodhisattvas. You know, there are people Mm -hmm. that have gone through multiple, multiple reincarnations in this life, learned everything that they had to learn. Of course, that never ends. That work never ends. This whole process Mm -hmm. of source falling asleep and waking up is a part of the process of Earth. 
you know, like it, 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 to pretend that it's not awake and then awaken and then fall back asleep. This is just sort of the curriculum that's in place in order for us to really, really reach out to our divinity. But it sounds like to me is what you're pretty much embodying is what Carl Jung would consider the wounded healer archetype, which is somebody that experiences a tremendous amount of trauma in the past or even in a past life, have the sort of moral obligation to come back into the world and help heal other people with very, very similar things. That is a compassionate sort of impulse that I think is a really beautiful thing. And I'm, I mean, you mentioned about being an atheist. I'm not, I wouldn't consider myself an atheist. I kind of stopped considering myself anything, but it's interesting because there was a certain period of time where I became really interested in people that would consider themselves atheist. I even got into the works of like Sam Harris, you know, mm, yeah. I just wanted to figure out, you know, what their perspective is. And the one thing, really interesting thing that I learned, or at least I started to sort of gather about atheists is that some of them are spiritual and don't even know it, you know, and they don't even realize it because they take the same sort of position that maybe like an Advaita Vedanta Hindu spiritual teacher would. They're not going to define what God is and neither will an atheist because atheists mm-hmm. were more or less driven by, by facts. There's this sort of like them uh, wanting to wax poetic about the meaning of life without actually introducing the idea of having this sort of like big daddy in the sky watching over people. Mm-hmm. So I noticed like in, in some ways they're almost like two sides of the same coin. So when you have conversations sometimes with atheists, it's like there's a very spiritual aspect to it, but maybe the difference is they're not going to go out on a limb and say, okay, there is definitively a God, but a, more of like a spiritual person would say that, yes, there is because I am, but we can't define what it is. So ultimately you come to the same destination, you know? Yeah, I love that point. That's so wise. And um, I love Sam Harris, too. Um, And yeah, I think that you're right. It is the same thing, just different sides of the coin, or maybe even different ways of looking at the world. And yeah, I think that the word God is also so loaded for a lot of us. And I definitely have no judgment over people that are atheists or view life that way. I think for me, just there were certain experiences I started having where I was like, I really don't know anything. And I know that I don't know anything and how can I define myself in terms of like being someone that is like absolutely like not believing in God when I'm having these experiences that I can't even explain. Yeah. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing. I've had mystical experiences like that too. And one thing that I found interesting at the very beginning is that like, you know, Sam Harris, I read his book, have his, uh, have read have his book Waking Up, you know, which is a really mm-hmm. beautiful book, but he mentions like this, uh, this course that he launched, I think a, a few years back that involved meditation, right? Right away, the ego, if you're somebody into new age spirituality, you're like, okay, you have Sam Harris, who's an atheist, and then you have him doing a course on meditation, but he's not sort of matching together as a sort of spiritual component to it. But this is a really interesting thing because everything is spiritual, right? Everything, Mm -hmm. literally. Everything that involves some sort of movement in this sort of divine realm is spiritual. So if I'm not falling into like these definitions of what things are, Sam is just as spiritual as anybody else. He's just choosing Mm -hmm. to sort of express his divinity in the way that maybe seems more grounded in this realm. I think it's a choose-your-own-adventure type of game, you know? I, I, I am kind of a Libra, and I'm an, I'm an air sign, so I get like to get lost in the clouds and the firmament, and, you know, life very much seems magical to me. The mystical experiences that I have are very much the same thing. So I feel like, you know, God expresses itself in a multitude of ways, so it's all spiritual, you know? Totally. I love that. I love the idea that, like, all rivers lead to the ocean right and it's like all i think all paths ultimately like if you are committed to a path whether it's intellectual or atheistic or super spiritual or religious i think that if you are committed to practice like 
you will uncover the same thing. And I think that's where we see that. And like, you know, I love Jesus and I love Buddha. And like these teachers just are teaching from their own specific world lens, their own perspective, their own life view. And they're really talking about the same thing because, and I think that's where maybe there is a level of like ultimate truth in the universe is because like, there is that thing that we're all touching on in our own language, in our own ways. And that's totally true. And it, it, the, the conversation changes when you actually start thinking of Jesus and Buddha as people. I think a, a really big error, in our, especially in the West, is thinking as these characters as sort of like these omnipresent beings that we can't relate to in any way because we don't have maybe the same powers that we imagine mm-hmm. that they have. But the one thing that I learned you know, later on in life is that the reason why I relate so much more with Jesus and so much more with Buddha and so much more with like all these other sort of figures is because they were human. And mm-hmm. you're absolutely right. Like they're they're speaking from their vantage point of spirituality and all of it is very, very useful. We can learn from it all. And uh, when we kind of bring them down back to, to reality and, and sort of ground them into this sort of 3D world, we are no different, especially if we're going to look at life from this sort of like collective I am, like all of us are essentially the same. You know, it just shows that we can be our own Jesus and our own Buddha. As long as we don't let yeah. that little ego come in and try and personify it <laughs> and take ownership over it. You know what I mean? That's the tricky part. So yeah, that's the tricky that. part. So you said you, mm-hmm. you uh, in, in your bio, you said you began exploring what it meant to be human and why there was so much pain in the world. I'm curious what you discovered when you kind of mm-hmm. ventured into that and you were able to have your sort of Buddha venturing outside the gates and seeing an old person, what did you discover? Yeah, so much. Yeah, I think my, my journey in that realm really did start like as an intellectual and as just reading everything I could. And, you know, it first really started more with like science and the mind and then expanded into like Zen and also like the Bible and just, again, getting more, I feel like I started very academic and have like expanded a lot more, but I think the biggest thing I've discovered in that realm of like what it means to be a human is like, again, what's underneath the ego, like who I actually am. And I think through like Jesus is someone that stands out as a big figure for me because learning like being a child of God or being being God and being human, like that duality that is often, I feel like, misunderstood, but learning that about the self, like we are divine beings and we are also human. And I think that as much as in like spiritual in the spiritual world or you know spiritual groups like often we can kind of demonize the ego i my personal opinion is that um the ego is equally as important to being a human as the the true self and i think that we wouldn't be human if we weren't here to also learn through the ego and learn about like our that's that part of ourselves and again that's something that in our society, people know all about that and they know nothing about the divine, right? Or they are so attached to the ego. So there's a balance there. But I think the more I learn about, yeah, what it means to be a human, I'm like, it is also important to have an ego. And as far as the suffering, the suffering goes, I think a big part of why we suffer is because we're so disconnected and we're asleep and we're, yeah, disconnected from our bodies, from ourself, from our nature, from the earth from each other and i think that's really the source of so much pain Um, yeah yeah that's beautiful one thing that i think is really interesting that we tend to hear especially on like social media platforms is this sort of conversation about ego death you know Mm -hmm. you can find like you know videos on tiktok about like five steps in order to annihilate your ego for good and you never ever have to see it again and i just think of myself oh that's just more ego right and uh, that reminds me of this quote by alan watts who says 
thinking that you could eradicate the ego is the biggest ego trip there is. And this is sort of like a really good example of kind of like what how ego tends to get into the realm of spirituality without our even knowing it. So it's really, really sneaky. But I like to think of ego as this sort of uh, something that we absolutely should collaborate with because it's the one thing that is really, really useful when it comes to practical things like keeping you alive, helping you um, eat. It, there's a really important role that it plays in our survival. But the one thing that I learned along my my journey is that the ego knows lots of things in terms of practicality and functionality, but it doesn't really know a whole lot about the nature of existence. Like you can't define God with the ego because the ego just doesn't know. And when we pose the question, what is God? The ego is the one that wants to find out. So right there, right there, awareness should take that down right away because you know that you're coming from ego. So the only thing that yeah. you could really do is just experience life and the question yeah. just sort of dissolves, you know? Mm-hmm. Beautiful. Yeah, it's kind of like the being versus the doing. Exactly. Like the ego is an important part of doing and keeping us alive, like you said. Um, and it can teach us a lot, but then there's something that there's things that the ego, like you said, can't understand, can't filter, can't experience because it's so, so noisy and creates so much noise inside of the system. And I think that's where we have to develop a healthy ego before we can then like go beyond the ego and transcend the ego. But I do think it's a basis of, and I think that's partly why like my interest in therapy is like maybe healing the ego and like making a solid ego. And then from there, then we can expand and say what's beyond the ego and gain that awareness of the ego as separate than the self. And really, I think the word that comes to mind when we talk about this, Eric, is really like freedom. Yeah. Like become and Sam Harris talks about this a bit too, like what level of freedom do we actually have as people? And I think the more conscious we are and the more we're able to recognize the ego that actually gives us the ability to use it as a tool instead of being a slave to it. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's really, really beautiful. It reminds me of this quote that just came to mind, and I had it on my phone. Mm-hmm. It was by this author named Ramesh Balsikar, and uh, he has this quote that put it really perfectly what we're talking about. He says, we need concepts in order to communicate until the mind has reached a stage where it realizes that what it is seeking is beyond its comprehension. So mm-hmm. it's basically like we have to go through this process of consistently asking ourselves and tiring ourselves out, tiring our ego out with questions until we realize that the ego doesn't have the answer. Mm -hmm. And so that whole process of spirituality and going down our path is necessary in order to realize that we don't need it anymore. And I think Mm -hmm. that's the sort of like chakra's journey from, you know, the the root all the way to the thousand-petaled lotus is like once you get to that crown, once you get to that third eye and you see your divinity, then you can let go of everything, all of your concepts, because... Once you enter into that realm, all those concepts seem to die away. And I think the recognition of that is knowing no amount of question that you ask your ego is ever going to be able to provide the answer in terms of God, in terms of that mm-hmm. sort of fundamental spark of who we are. And that's a really beautiful thing, but definitely a necessary journey that everybody needs to go on. We all, I, we've all been that person. I've been that person before, you know, like right at the very, very beginning. Say you have a mystical experience or some mind-blowing experience during like a plant medicine ceremony where all of a sudden like you feel like you've been assigned to do a really special and unique task by the universe. So you go around uh, doing that, but there's this sort of little tinge of ego behind it, you know? Mm -hmm. And you have to do that for a little bit of time until you realize like, oh shit, you know, my ego is taking ownership over this. And then that starts to subside and then you go into what you're talking about, a process of doing and not thinking so much, you know? When you're talking about the third eye and kind of awakening to being able to let go of things, I'm curious, Eric, for you with your um, near-death experience, did you have that 
I feel like that would be the ultimate moment of like, like, did you feel like you separated from the ego entirely in that experience? It, 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 I would say yes from, uh, if, from more of a conceptual sort of perspective. Uh, it reminds me of like, these quotes from a lot of these Eastern masters, which is like, when the ego isn't, the God is. You know? So it wasn't so much like a transition. It was more of a, a waking up to something much fuller that had already been there. And this is sort of like a practice that we can kind of um, partake, partake in just even in regular everyday life, which is when the ego is not there, awareness is already there. Like you don't go from one to the other. You're already resting within the fabric of your own divinity. And in my near-death experience, when that ego sort of disappeared, I just was. Like everything was there. So there was this, this feeling of separation, but it wasn't a feeling of, you know, my ego dying and then me becoming something else. It made me realize like the truth of what the ego was and the truth of what I've always been, you know. So yeah, that was a really, really, really beautiful experience that put everything into perspective for me. And uh, things like plant medicine ceremonies can do the very same thing. You know, they can yeah. place you into this sort of darshan of Christ is what Ram Das would, would call it, but you can't stay there, right? So even if we had a near-death experience, even if I had a plant medicine journey where that took me to like the very peak of that divinity, you still have to come back down at some point. And so mm-hmm. trying to work that into the, the curriculum of how we live our life, I think is the practice for sure. Mm-hmm. And this is, oh man, this is something that I, it definitely sounds like me and you are very, very passionate about, but I wanted to bring it back to the HSP stuff because this is, this is your jam, okay? So I wanted yeah. to ask you because I, I grew up and I relate to your experience when it comes to how you grew up. My father was an addict and I found myself falling into this sort of caretaker role. I found myself falling into this sort of like a, uh, caretaker role, which I, from my perspective, created a lot of sort of codependent qualities in me. And being an HSP, I wanted to ask you, why is it that HSP types or empaths tend to fall so hard into toxic relationships with other people or even maybe narcissistic mm-hmm. types or people that are just, that, that are suffering? Why do we feel a need to help these people as often as we do? Yeah, such an important question. Um, think that our highly sensitive nervous system is really like a predisposition to becoming an empath Um, and I think like when you tell me a little bit about your story it makes me think of maybe that was a part of you developing into an empath being highly sensitive gives us the ability to feel into other people's experiences to be more attuned to other people's experiences Um, and having that empathic quality too of yeah like maybe feeling other people's pain equally to our own Whereas I don't know if you have siblings, but for me and my family, my other, my two other siblings are definitely, I don't think they're highly sensitive. And I think that I, as the sensitive one, was the one that, that fell into the caregiving or the caretaking because I could feel the pain. Like it wasn't just like separate from me, like, oh, they're struggling. It was like, I'm struggling because they're struggling. And I think especially as children, when we're not taught, like to have that separation in a healthy way as being highly sensitive it's like we almost learn that as like it can be a survival thing, a coping thing of like, okay, I need to be in this person's experience or there might be some benefit we get even out of tapping into like a parent's experience. Like if we have an abusive parent or something, like being attuned to them and knowing how they're feeling or what they're needing can help us survive and cope in life. And I think that kind of develops into both a pattern, but also can lead into being like, very empathic because we're kind of strengthening that gift of like feeling in and tapping into other people's energy but the problem is when we do that like unaware and we're not aware of the fact that we're doing that i think we just fall into similar patterns um i think there's 
both like an attraction, you know, both ways between like narcissists and empaths because they're opposites and, and I think they pull each other in as well as I think there's, I mean, there's so much here, but like, you know, we, I think we have healing vibes and kind of pull, pull that in, that um, attraction together. But also a lot of it is just, yeah, how we've learned to survive in the world and how we've learned to cope and the ways that we've shown up that serve us. So, um, and not all empaths have like, you don't have to have trauma to be an empath. I don't agree with that sentiment that a lot of people say, but I do think that it can be something that makes us even more empathic and makes us, um, us rely on our empathic nature in order to survive in a world in the world and to be accepted by others, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. It doesn't. Uh, I agree that like trauma doesn't necessarily equate to an empath. I think that maybe they're predisposed to uh, sort of like gathering trauma because of their sensitivity. This brings up another really mm-hmm. important um, I, thought for me, and I wanted to know what your perspective on it is. It makes me think of epigenetics, which is you know how much of our parents are we, considering we came from our parents. And so mm-hmm. I'm noticing my, my father, he was a very sensitive person. He was a very empathetic person. Maybe the difference between me and him is that I've taken the steps in order to tap in more with my emotions and my spirituality. And I could just say that I learned from him how important it is to do that. But I noticed that, you know, HSP types or maybe empaths tend to fall into addiction a lot more than other people. And I think maybe this has to do with a really crazy world and them not maybe having the tools available in order to absorb it, you know, or to deal with it. Why do you think that? Um, do you think that that is like a, a, a worthy argument? Like, do you think that uh, there's a reason why HSP or empathetic types tend to fall more into addiction and why that is? Absolutely. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that 100%. It's an unfortunate truth. And I'm hoping that that will start to change as we become more aware of like mental health and aware of these. I mean, HSP probably, I don't think it was even a trait probably when your dad was younger, there was no language around it. And my hope is that the world is becoming a kinder, more open, more aware place. But taking it back to your question, um, I think that having a highly sensitive nervous system and being prone to being overstimulated or anxious or feeling so much pain of the world and of other people when we don't know, yeah, we don't have the tools and the skills around dealing with that and around building a life that's healthy for us because our needs are different than a lot of other people. And like you said earlier, 15 to 20% of us are highly sensitive and that's, you know, a big percent, but also a minority and I think the world isn't really set up for us to succeed um, and if we don't take that upon ourselves it can be a really difficult place to live and because of that we often can resort to things like alcohol and drugs and ways of kind of numbing the system because if you think about it like being really sensitive being overstimulated all the time like alcohol can be a big one for us highly sensitive people and empaths because it can kind of make us feel less and make us feel a little more normal because um, I think that we also see that we feel so much and we kind of can look around and be like, these people aren't, there's a disconnect there too, right? Like we're not experiencing the same reality and it can make us feel more normal to resort to those things. And that's partly why I'm so passionate about this work is because I want to give other highly sensitive people and empathic people like the tools and skills that they need to be able to manage a highly sensitive being in a highly sensitive nervous system so that they don't have to resort to those things that can be so detrimental to our lives. 
Yeah, I think it's, it's really important work to have. It makes me think of this book that I read a while back called Quiet by Suzanne Kane. And she talks mm-hmm. a lot. She had a TED Talk that um, really stuck out to me, which made me want to buy the book. And she was <clears throat> somebody that was talking about introversion. Now in the West, uh, maybe as a product of our sort of industrial revolution, we've somehow demonized introverted type of people, right? Whenever, mm-hmm. whenever at least I grew up in the, with this type of mentality, mainly because of that's how they looked at us in school, right? If you weren't mm-hmm. a part of the class, if you weren't participating, if you weren't collaborating, there was something wrong with you. If you were an introvert, there was this, all this guilt that was associated with it. So if you're somebody that's HSP or empathetic, it almost seems like right away you think there's something wrong with you because all these other extroverted types are telling you that you need to be more extroverted. So I imagine that creates this sort of like negative impact on you as you get older. It would be no surprise to me that somebody would eventually get into drugs, especially if they were prone to addiction, because they need to, you know, assuage the pain of being told that there's something wrong with them, you know? But I feel like Mm -hmm. we're maybe arriving at a certain place in our world now where we're starting to maybe identify how important it is to have these introverted or maybe these highly sensitive types, because you have like the Elon Musk's of the world, you have like the Steve Jobs of the world, and these are people that are traditionally very introverted types. So it's interesting how, at least from my dad's perspective, that conversation hadn't even come into the field yet. So they didn't have the tools that they needed in order to make sense of what they're doing. So I think the type of work that you're doing, guiding these people out of their own shadow into the light and helping them realize like, hey, there's nothing wrong with you. This is actually a superpower that you can use for good things, right? Thanks, Eric. Yeah, I think that highly sensitive people are the leaders that we need. And, you know, I mean all people and all people authentically are the leaders that we need, but I do see a huge lack of that in our society and our Western society. Um, it's time for highly sensitive people and empathic people to kind of be people that step into leadership roles because we need to hear their voices. And that's partly too, like why I'm so passionate about this work is because I, I, I a hundred percent believe that we need, we need this superpower in the world. We need this kindness, this empathy, this sensitivity, um, as we look around and see what we're doing to the planet and what we're doing to each other. It's kind of, there's like a, we're off balance, I guess is what I have to say. And even the extroverted thing too, it makes me think of that too. Like we're off balance in that way. There's so many ways, the masculine, like, I just feel like we need to bring the world back to balance, not, you know, that one's better than the other. It's definitely not the case, but um, one has, a lot of these have been kind of suppressed and others put on a pedestal in our society. And when we're out of balance, I think that's what a big part of the problem is in our world right now. So wanting to kind of level that up and say, you know, we're all here with our own unique gifts and how can we use our gifts to serve ourselves and our community and each other. I think that's, that's a really, really beautiful way to put it. I agree with you. Uh, the way that we have been moving almost seems like a overtly masculine, right? right? Very logical, very mm-hmm. intellectual, very ego-driven. And there's not necessarily anything wrong with it. It's like what you say, there just needs to be balance. And I think what the introvert, what the empath, what the HSP represents is sort of like this, uh, almost like a more feminine type of energy, right? More emotional, more introspective. I think they fall into that realm because they're naturally more introspective. They fall in, they, they ventured so deep into these realms that a lot of maybe more extroverted types don't. And there's nothing wrong with extroverts. And in a lot of ways, they can actually teach us what Zen teaches us, which is the process of doing action moving. But you also need to have that softness, like you're talking about, that feminine energy in there that sort of like helps the intensity. Like there needs to be some softness, there needs to be some sensitivity in there, some feminine energy. 
Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and it, it makes me think a little bit, Eric, about what you brought up with like the percentage of us that are introverts versus extroverts. That's something that's really, I, I want to think about that more, but it's really interesting to hear that, um, what did you say, 20% of highly sensitive people are extroverts? Yeah, yeah, yeah the 20%. And, and that makes me think of like, okay, well, maybe this isn't... Um, just because somebody is an HSP doesn't necessarily mean that somebody, say you're in like like a work environment, that somebody just needs to be withdrawn in order to be able to do their work. They just process information differently, right? Mm-hmm. They just process information differently. If somebody needs to, and this is something that I actively go through in my life with my profession, uh, just in my the more more 3D realms, which is I'm somebody that likes to take work and I like to go run my own little corner and I like to disseminate that information and work on processing it. And I like to come back when I'm ready, and I like to just present everything that I have. Now, that's not really all that crazy if you really think about it. It's just a different way of doing things. But the narrative with, um, you know, our collective is that, you know, introverts just don't want to participate at all. Like, they just want to be alone in the room. They want to be left alone, and they don't want to participate in the world. And from my experience coming from this place, that's not the case. We're very much want to be a part. We very much want to collaborate and be a part of the world. We just have a different way of absorbing the information, processing it, redisseminating mm-hmm. it out into the world, you know? That processing part, that's really what sticks out to me is like, I do think you hit the nail on the head there, Eric, because um, I think with extroverts, they process kind of outside of themselves. Maybe they bounce ideas off of other people or even just talking and, you know, it's kind of like happening here. And I think with introverts, we take it in. And we kind of do that, and then we are like can present it. So it's just yeah, yeah. a way, of, a different way of processing. And um, yeah, it's I I hope I'm hopeful for the way we're moving in society where we'll be able to better honor introverts and have more introvert leaders because I think that's very much needed. But. Yeah, I remember I took on this uh, training program a while back, and uh, they do like these team building type of exercises. This is more 3D stuff, but I feel like it's important to mention now. Part of this program was they were trying to determine who out of this group of people, let's just say 20 people, who were the extroverts and who were the introverts. And so we did a series of tests in order to determine what this was. And at the end of this test, they had us all line up in this line, this sort of linear line that started one place and ended another. And we all stood on the chart where we fell on the level of extroversion and introversion. Of course, I was at the very, very end of introversion. It was like me and a few other people that I knew that I'd worked with that were introverts. And then at the very opposite end of this line were the extroverts, the managers, like the directors, the people that were like, you know, the ones that took on these positions of authority. So the, the linear line was very clear. So we're all looking mm-hmm. at each other like, yep, we knew that. Yeah, we knew that. But the one interesting thing that they mentioned in this training program is that they both need each other to exist right? The, the, the most profound thing about this training was if I'm looking at this with spiritual eyes, I'm seeing both of the polarities working in front of me, right? And mm-hmm. in order for that manager to manage, in order for that person as an extrovert to exist, they need to have the introvert there to support that and vice versa. In order for an introvert, a highly sensitive person to exist, those extroverted types need to be there as a way to sort of exemplify the contrast, so help me realize that we need all of these people in the world. So it's not about eradicating one and not the other. It's about, like you said, finding balance. They all need each other, right? Mm-hmm. Totally. So I wanted to ask you, how do you, how do you impasse HSBs create balance between being open to the, maybe the intensity of the world and allowing themselves the space and maybe respite to process their emotions? How do we find balance in the world with 
feeling things as intensely as we do? Mm, Such an important question and thing to reflect on. Um, Well, the first thing that comes to my mind, Eric, is really getting in touch with one's own needs. Um, I think that as empaths, we can often kind of live in the realm of like people pleasing if we're not careful or being so attuned to other people's needs. Like it, a way I like to explain it is kind of like we're more permeable like to outside information, to outside energies. And we can kind of lose ourselves in that because we're like maybe feeling other people's needs just like our own and kind of that's where codependency can develop but constantly maybe acting in a way to meet others needs or acting like externally to care for others and I think really the cure is to get in touch with one's own needs first and foremost and having acceptance over that and having acceptance that our needs are individual to all of us but I think especially if you're highly sensitive our needs can be look a lot different than other people's needs we can need a lot more solitude we can need a lot more um, quiet time. We can need to have like really clean um, specific spaces to work. So I think as we get more in touch with our own needs, then we can find that balance by being able to have awareness around how am I feeling and being in touch with myself. Like for example, every day could be different. Like maybe one day I'm feeling I need a lot of alone time today and I'm going to honor that. And maybe another day I'm like, you know, I'm okay. I'm okay to go do X, Y, and Z. But needing to have that awareness around, I think bodily awareness is a big part of that. Like being in touch with the body, being in touch with how our body feels and how we're holding energy in our bodies can be a great way to go about that. But it is it is a lot of work to, um, to find that balance. And I think for everyone individually, it's going to be a different journey. But um, ultimately, if exploring the realm of needs and awareness around needs and the body is a great first step to getting there. Yeah. And it's really, really profound when you said paying attention to your own needs, because it doesn't seem in the big scope of things to be, I guess, the most profound thing, but it is when we are typically people that focus on other people's needs first, right? And I'm Mm -hmm. noticing that empaths and, and more sensitive types tend to do that. Like they will take care of everybody else's needs except for their own. They'll take care of all these other people. They'll focus on, they'll, they'll, they'll put in so much effort into trying to caretake other people or trying to help other people with their wounds in such a way that eventually they just start to disappear. They forget about themselves. They either get lost in toxic relationships, they lose themselves in all these different things. And to circle it back and to actually focus time on yourself when you look at it from that perspective is really profound. Focusing on your own needs. This brings me to another question that you mentioned in your IG, which I thought was really, really interesting and wanted your insight on which is you mentioned sadness being sacred, sadness being a human emotion that we all feel when it comes into the realm of taking care of our own needs. Sadness, I imagine those imagine that being one of those things. You said sadness was sacred, and this is, I think, such a beautiful reflection and teaching. How can people change their relationship to sadness, and why do you think that sadness is sacred? Mm, I love that. Yeah, thank you so much for bringing that up, Eric. Um, well, I think sadness is something that we often kind of push away or we have an aversion to and it makes sense because you know a lot of our brain is still kind of more mammalian or primitive and you know negative emotions like fear sadness um, suffering have been a way for us to know to keep us safe because it's something that we are averse to like it's actually neurologically like we're averse to these things and it makes sense when we look at our evolution and we look at a lot of our brain that isn't fully like evolved. So yeah, I think a lot of us like push it away, don't want to feel it. It feels uncomfortable. It feels painful. Um, And I think the first way to kind of 
change your relationship to sadness is being able to expand your nervous system to be able to hold that emotion, to be able to hold fear, to be able to hold pain and suffering. Um, and that can take some work and some healing work to get there. But it's really important to make that space, make that space for whatever emotions we're feeling or processing. And as empaths and highly sensitive people, like it can be pain that's not necessarily even ours, but I think that there we're here to process it partly not as our responsibility but i think there's so much wisdom we can learn from processing it and you know i feel like that's kind of broad talking about like expanding the nervous system but that's some of the work that i do with my clients um other other things that have been really helpful for me is like creating rituals around sadness and like actually honoring it as something like as a teacher as something that has so much wisdom and is here to teach us and I think it's Jack Cornfield a teacher that I really love he talks about like he refers to like negative emotions or things as like demons and he talks about like having those demons in for tea and like talking to them and learning to them and creating friendship with them and for me that's been a really interesting way to reestablish my relationship with sadness and some of these other emotions that we typically label as negative is like how do i let this in for tea how do i befriend this emotion and what does this emotion have to teach me because there's deep deep wisdom in our emotionality and as we lean into our emotionality we can learn so much yeah that's really really beautiful i love jack cornfield and i think another thing that i heard from one of his teachings when he talks about buddhism is life consists of ten thousand joys and ten thousand sorrows and all of these things Mm -hmm. are a necessity in order for us to understand love. Like there's this uh, conversation that happens, I think, in spiritual circles, which is, at least at the very beginning, is that like, okay, well, being enlightened means to just be happy all the time, to just let in all the positivity and just sort of demonize maybe all the shadow work. At the very beginning, a lot of people don't want to go that way. But the one thing that I, mm-hmm. I had learned along my my journey is like how how important and how integral it is to understand your sadness and your pain Because just like I was talking about before, the contrasts in life have to exist for both of these dynamics to exist. So the only reason we feel happiness is because at some point in our life, we've felt sadness before. And Mm -hmm. because we've felt sadness, we understand what it is that it feels like. We have the ability to understand what it means to actually love and enjoy each moment that we're in. And so I think um, what I'm drawing from what you're saying is that like, you know, it'll hurt to to ease into the sadness if you're looking at your healing from the egoic perspective, but it will be freeing and liberating if you're looking at your sadness from awareness Mm because you're feeling it just as more of an experience and understanding that in life there are going to be happy times, there are going to be sad times, and the whole point isn't to identify or over-identify with these moments, but to use them as opportunities to push you forward, opportunities for growth. Absolutely. Yeah, I think there's no growth without suffering. And um, again, like, I think these, these concepts keep coming up in our conversation, Eric, of just like the duality of um, the importance of both sides of things and, and being a human. And I think as we expand our nervous system to be able to hold sadness and to experience it and let it be, we also expand our ability to hold joy and have bliss and have love. Um, the shadow and the light, I the more I'm learning, it's like they're so equally important. And I know that we very much, the light is more comfortable, right? But the darkness can propel us into more light. Um, And if we leave the darkness unaddressed or even like don't honor the darkness, we're really just shutting off half of what it really means to be, to be a human. 
Yeah, absolutely. And we can we can we can see and study all these polarities, even just in I think the maybe number one thing that creates a lot of conflict in the world, which is the people's fear of death. Right. I can equate all the violence that happens and all of the fear that people go through in life with this sort of underlying vibration and feeling of just being terrified with death that people have. And one interesting mm-hmm. thing is, you know, people have to go down that journey into understanding what death means. But death is just the other side of life. Like we were talking about at the very beginning of the podcast, like when you go out into a garden or nature, you're somebody that is amongst the trees. You see flowers dying and being reborn every single year. And you see this sort of recycling of nature, like the sun sets and then the moon rises and the sun sets. There's this always constant back and forth of light and dark happening around us all the time. And nature doesn't seem to be really preoccupied with the question of what it means to die what does this mean? Does this mean annihilation? Like we somehow human beings are the only people that are preoccupied with this question of death and this fear of death. And because we're a part of nature, it almost seems like the most, uh, I guess, intrinsic thing that we can do is just flow with everything and realize that everything will be taken care of. You know, like Alan Watts, I I love Alan Watts because he talks a lot about what we're talking about, just like these polarities in, in, in Zen, being aware of them. Talks about like, like we can't have life without death. So if you very much are a big fan of life and you're very much a big fan of being alive and doing the things that you do, then you have to be a fan of death at the same time. Because if we didn't have that, we would just go on forever and ever and ever and life would lose its freshness and we wouldn't have the ability to take on all these different other roles that we have in life and be able to learn from those things, you know? That's so beautiful, yeah. Death makes life sacred. Yeah. And one thing I did want to ask you about you know, because HSP types, sensitive types, they're coming from my own experience, but also experiences with, with other people that are HSPs, just somehow when you are an empath, you end up running across just like with you people that also embody that same sort of energy. You tend to hear conversations a lot about them in relationships with other people that may perhaps be toxic for them. And the one mm-hmm. thing that conversation that I tend to hear a lot often is about boundaries, about boundaries, mm-hmm. empaths not having really strict boundaries with how they give up their energy. From your perspective, what can they do in order to create more firm boundaries with the world, with maybe things that absorb a lot of their energy or maybe even toxic types? Yeah, that's a great question and something that I've definitely done a lot of work on in my own life and um, do a lot of work with my clients around. It seems to be one of the core issues or problems that we come across as empaths. And again, I think bringing it to the needs is another again, in this realm is also important, getting in touch with our needs, getting in touch with who we are, getting in touch with our yes and our no. Um, And that can be, you know, a little bit tricky because as empaths and highly sensitive people, again, we, we take other people into account so much that sometimes we need to strip that away to connect with like our wants and our desires, our needs. So kind of I think there can be codependency there that needs to be healed and you can do that through like inner child healing work and just getting more curious and aware of some of those patterns. So it's really, it can be specific to the person, but in general, I mean, there's a lot of work that you can do around boundaries. I think the initial thing would be becoming aware of how you show up in relationship to others and being aware of the yes and the no inside of you and learning to express that, which again can be scary for us because there can be trauma around that and codependency and 
you know, coming into a relationship where we're overgiving can be a trauma response. It can be a coping mechanism for us. So um, I think doing healing work around that is definitely a basis. And then for me, learning about energetic boundaries and doing a lot of like meditative work around that and kind of a little bit more like metaphysical, like visualization work around energetic boundaries as an empath has been a huge game changer um, in my life. Yeah. It almost seems like the, the the fundamental of that is just mm, acknowledging that like your needs matter, you know, like your needs matter, mm-hmm. and it's a, it's okay to to fight for your needs and to create strict strict boundaries um, in in that regard. I wanted to ask you. So we're in a really really interesting time. I'd like to get your perspective on this because <clears throat> this is a really unique time in our human history right now, at least for us. Um, there's a lot of uncertainty in the world. You have this sort of pandemic changing the way that we see reality. And one can even look at it as this sort of collective dark night of the soul is what kind of me and Jen tend to think of it as. And for somebody that's a very sensitive type or someone that's an empath or an HSP, I imagine it's affecting a lot of us in a multitude of different ways. Um, one, I'd just like to know, you know, how can they ground their energy with so much, you know, uncertainty, misinformation, or even just with the uh, this sort of legacy media, sort of like a fear type of energy that we're feeling in the world, how can we ground ourselves and um, not get lost in that? Mm, yeah, such an important question. So much so much fear and uncertainty. I love that, the idea of we are going through a collective dark night of the soul. I think you're so spot on, Eric. Um, I mean, initially, my first thought is like getting into nature, like getting back in touch with nature and like physically grounding like physically working with earth um standing outside or whatever way that feels good to you like actually grounding your energy to the earth as an empath that's something we can really tap into really easily given that we can feel energies and sense energies and as we become more advanced we can work with energies um i think literally grounding into the energy of the earth and the healing energy of the earth um, can help ground our system and allow for presence and allow for the recycling of some of that fear and the processing of some of that fear in a healthy way. So I'd say that's the first thing I would say in response to that. Um, And I think it's really a time to go within. I think that sometimes we need to shut off all the messaging, shut off all the stories, and focus on what we can control and what's in our power to improve focusing on our purpose, on our authentic mission. Yeah, really going within and staying focused on the things that are in our power to change versus getting lost in all the stories. So really, I see it as like a, you know, we can live up here and live in the fear and live in the anxiety and live in the unknown and just kind of run around and be lost. Or we can kind of come back to our center, come back to our bodies, to the earth and yeah, focus on our realm. I know a lot of people that were just spent every single day going out there trying to crush it doing something. Maybe they were DJs, maybe they were out there just always out there doing something. And when the pandemic happened and they were sort of forced out of that into this role of what you're talking about, just going more within, spending more time at home, hopefully they have a better understanding of what empaths and HSPs have always been doing this entire time, which is like spending time (laughs) alone with themselves. And I know people like this. I know people that have like, you know, they were extroverted types and now that they've spent the last two years 
uh, sort of introspecting on the life that they were living, they started to embody more of that softer side in them. They spent more time alone. Mm -hmm. They spent more time in introspection. And there are a lot of people that I know now that were like, you know what, even if everything changed, even if the pandemic ended, I don't know that I would ever go back to that life because there is something beautiful and profound that I found in just being present with what's around me. You know, people started cultivating better relationships with friends, with family, and just with themselves. Mm -hmm. And so that's the sort of dark night of the soul, the blessing, the sort of hidden form of fierce grace that I feel like is resting within the pandemic, which is it allowed everybody the opportunity to go within and see how bright and how loud the contrast is. And knowing that they don't want to participate in the chaos, they'd rather participate in the peace. So they start going more inwards and spending more time with themselves, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. Yeah, we have we have that choice to to be in the chaos or to um, have peace. And I think that's where, yeah, peace is, a lot of us think of peace as um, like a passive thing, but I, I truly believe it's very active. We have to work for that and cultivate that and choose that, choose that path. Yeah, I think that's such an optimistic view of seeing how, how people's lives have been transformed. And it's just a testimony to the fact that pain can be a catalyst for change. And we can allow pain and suffering and death and darkness to illuminate, to make the light brighter within and to um, teach us and propel us forward. So, yeah. and, and just be, and this is one really, I want to know what your perspective on this, because it, it introduced this new level of honesty uh, with how people kind of navigate through life. And I started thinking about this. Well, how is it that tragedy and, and, and trauma and chaos create honesty in somebody? When I was doing hospice work, and I worked in actually senior citizens' homes for a long time with mm. a lot of elderly people, and there was a, I asked myself, well, why is it that I connect so deeply with these people? And there's something that comes over somebody that understands that their def- death is inevitable. They've, they've sort of accepted the fact that they are going to pass on eventually at some point. And so with that acceptance comes this feeling that they don't really need to pretend anymore, that they don't need to be anything other than what they are. And so there's this honesty mm-hmm. with somebody that's dying that you don't typically get with somebody that has a lot to lose, that maybe has a strong ego. And I'm noticing that mm-hmm. same sort of energy when it comes to you know the pandemic and COVID, when it comes to like talking to certain people, it's like a lot of what they identified as being who they were died as a result of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. And now there's this feeling of sincerity in my conversations with people where it's like, now we're on an even playing field. Now we're all the same. You know, there's nothing mm-hmm. that separates me from you. You can have all the money in the world, but that pandemic, if that COVID's going to get your ass, it's going to get you the same way it's going to get me. So it created this mm-hmm. sort of newfound sense of honesty between people and this sort of like almost weird sense of unity because it's like, there isn't one person that isn't being impacted by this, you know? Do you That's feel that? energy from the people when you were in, in at least from my experience with hospice a lot of the people were non-vocal or maybe they had like dementia or something but the ones that were vocal or the relationships that you did create with uh, some of the people in hospice did you feel that type of sincerity with them mm, absolutely yeah I think that could be partly why I've felt drawn to work with elderly people from a young age it's like I've always felt at home in the company of those who are elderly and dying, which um, you've put such beautiful words to that for me, Eric, how it's almost like the ego is maybe loosening its grip or slipping away a bit and you see underneath it this like extreme wisdom and aliveness. Um, I don't know how, how else to say that. It's yeah, this 
their essence. It's like people are maybe a little bit more transparent as far as like they don't have all these layers. They're starting to, I think the process of death, we start to shed some of those layers as we, you know, as we grow, it's like we build it. And then as we die, we, we shed, we shed those layers and beneath it is, yeah, more of a pure essence and more of a sincerity. And I think that's so spot on. It's a beautiful thing. They become almost like this swinging door between reality and the other. And it's, there's such like a magical, just beautiful like feeling that comes into the room when somebody's passing away. It is one of the most beautiful experiences that I've ever been able to encounter because you feel like you are right at the sort of precipice of like heaven or, you know, divinity, mm. or you feel like God is in the room with you. And it is complete opposite of what, you know, most people think of death because a lot of how we identify death is pretty much every horror movie that we've ever seen or any movie that we've seen that involves death. But if you actually get the time to spend with somebody that is passing away, it is a beautiful process. And it helped me realize that like, you know, this is something that shouldn't be feared. This is something that should be accepted. And this is something that at least in like Buddhism, they celebrate, you know, those, a lot of those monks prepare their entire lives for just this like heroic moment where they get to finally mm-hmm. go back to their source, you know? And, and I think um, yeah. Alan Watts talked about it too in one of his talks where he's like, you know what, why do, why do patients that are in hospitals, um, are, why are they so afraid of death? And I think that the reason why is because nurses and doctors, their profession is to try and keep you alive, right? And mm-hmm. when they know that your death is inevitable, they can't do anything for you. They don't have any, they're not, they're not versed in, in this sort of like process of death, which is unfortunate. They should be. But so they end up telling you things like, oh, you're going to be okay. Everything's going to be fine. But there needs to be somebody like you sitting by their side, letting them know that like, hey, you're not going to be fine. You're going to be okay though. But this whole thing that you're going through is perfectly normal. Alan Watts talked about it. It should be a celebration. There should be, we should throw a party. We should all just be like, okay, look, you made it to this point. After this point, you're going to go and you're going to celebrate. You're going to enjoy it. And it's just going to be like waking up from a dream and everything should be great. Everything should be awesome. You know? Yeah. It's beautiful. I think it's a huge misservice that in our Western culture, specifically like Western medicine, yeah, death is viewed as like defeat, right? Or um, something that we're constantly fighting and battling. And so therefore that in itself like demonizes it or makes it, Bad. And yeah, it breaks my heart to think about people dying in a hospital or dying in such a sterile environment because I do think like having ritual around that, having a sacred space for someone to die is very important um, and death should, yeah. Um, so when you, you said you worked as like a death doula for a while, did you help people like create plans around their death and ritual around their death? Yeah, we had these like things called like legacy projects. And this is something where I feel like my, I guess my uh, sound healing and my, I do like video editing and stuff like that. So I was, worked with them for a while uh, towards putting together, they called them like legacy projects where you're building pretty much this biography of who they are, what they represent, what they're a part of. And depending on the family that you sit with, you can't just openly take on like a Buddhist perspective with somebody that's passing away because they could be Christian. You know what I mean? So you work mm-hmm. alongside of like chaplains and things like that to see kind of what's available. So it's hard because you kind of have to just make it as universal as possible. So some of them you can create certain rituals with and some that you can't. But I always tried to create a relationship with them that celebrated their life by either through pictures or through video or through conversations, recorded conversations that I have with them. And uh, mm-hmm. I worked alongside a lot of these chaplains in order to have conversations with them about the conversation of death. I wanted to try and make it in such a way that it wasn't so you know, it wasn't so stigmatized, 
that it was just as, as yeah. uh, comfortable as just like walking through a doorway. So just talking about it as if I've been there. And in some essences, mm-hmm. in some, some ways I have. Yeah. So that's the way that I, I kind of wanted to approach it. It's interesting that you mentioned about like, you know, when we're passing away, we're usually in these sort of like maybe hospital type of beds. And it makes me think of birth too, because birth is very much the same way, you know? Yeah. Like we're, we're placed into these hospitals and that's the first, that's the first thing that you experience as a child is being in a hospital. It's like no wonder, like in Buddhism, they consider like death being one, I'm sorry, not death, but life being, birth being one of the most traumatic experiences that you can go through. And maybe you go through your entire life trying to recover from that. But if I were born into a hospital in a super unnatural way, no surprise. And I've had conversations with other people about this, like how that actually, how that manifests as you get older. Like how much of a trauma is that? You know what I mean? Yeah. That's so true. I do see society moving in. Like I have some friends that are like wanting to become birth doulas and I see I see a shift happening and that makes me so hopeful. But yeah, it's it's one of those things that we don't think of. We don't think deeply about, but it is birth and death are such spiritual and sacred experiences. Yeah. I watched this documentary a while back <clears throat> about midwives, right? So midwives mm-hmm. are people that sort of act as mediators um, for, I guess, uh, women that are having, they're having babies. And so the documentary was about introducing dolphins as midwives, which is really interesting, far out concept. But the read there, there's, I've read some, some um, articles about this. Well, you know, if you're somebody in a new age theology, well, dolphins come from the Pleiades and a lot of people consider dolphins very alien-like. And there are even some Mm. schools of thought that see dolphins as coming from the Pleiades, right from the sky. Anyways, there's something about when you put a dolphin next to a child that's being born there's some weird synchronicity that happens, some synergy that happens between the dolphin and that baby where like the baby is just super chill and the dolphin like is super chill. And there are actually people out there that are using dolphins as midwives. That's incredible. You might have to send me the name of that or a link to that, Eric. That sounds absolutely fascinating. <laughs> yeah. And you tell somebody like your aunt and they're just like, what? You're crazy. The dolphin's going to eat my kid. And you're like, no, no, no. You don't understand. <laughs> You know, there's something that happens. Of course, not everybody's going to agree with that. You know, there's, there, are, there are people that don't even agree with, you know, water births. You know what I mean? But I feel like mm-hmm. water births are more, feel like more of a natural process because that is mimicking the same sort of womb that they're in. And so just yeah. like you say, just rethinking the way that we look at things like that, you know, can I think help mm-hmm. us assuage some of the trauma that we carry with us into adulthood? You know, these little tiny yeah. little rituals make such a big impact. Yeah, like getting back to the basis of what it means to be a human. Again, I think that's the whole, we're so disconnected. We're so disconnected from what it means to be a human and that like in a lot of ways we are animals and we're from the earth. And I think through a lot of our conversations today, I've just seen that as, yeah, kind of like a theme of like, how do we get back to the core, back to the root of who we really are? Yeah. And it's interesting when we come to that perspective because, and I tell this, talk to this to Jen all the time, when, when we say like, oh, meditate, hang out in nature, it seems so simple that it's hard to believe that it works. And this is sort of like what the ego does. It's like when somebody approaches spirituality, they just want this mind-blowing fucking curriculum that's going to completely dismantle everything in your life. But really, it's just about getting back to the basics, like getting back to like our humanness, you know, which is something that really, really can't be taught. It just becomes more of like a remembering. It's something that comes as a result of peeling through the layers of all the crap that we've piled on top of it and realizing what's already been there, you know. And that's why I think that you get that sort of uh, this sort of chuckle that you see in sort of student 
uh, teacher relationships in like gurus in the East, when somebody realizes their divinity, they just start laughing because they don't realize how simple it really is and how they were just sort of complicating the entire process, you know? Yeah. yeah I wanted to talk to you about uh, just really, really quickly here because we're approaching the end. Man, this can go on for ever for sure but i wanted to ask you this one question because you did mention that you were a mystic in your page and i couldn't end this mm-hmm. without asking you some mystical type of questions so you mentioned that there were some deeply transformative experiences that you had that caused you to become a mystic can you share some mm-hmm. of those mystical experiences with us sure i guess the first one that i've ever that i ever had and that was still very much in my earlier years where i was very much like atheistic and using drugs and alcohol and went on a camping trip and actually did LSD for the first time. And I think that was probably the first mystical experience I had of just like feeling the deep connection with the earth and with the flowers and with the water and the animals and just feeling so like seeing beyond the eyes and the physical realm and feeling like noticing that there actually is so much more that is unknowable and the aliveness of every everything, every living thing, and the consciousness of everything. So I think that was definitely my first experience that was um, mystical. I also had a um, near-death experience as well, Eric, about four years ago, where, yeah, I think that was, again, another, it propelled me even deeper into the realm of the mystic, but being able to kind of, yeah, feel and see my body from the outside and feel myself leaving that. And I think that was a huge insight into being separate from from my body and led to a lot of more of that exploration around like, okay, who am I if I'm not this body? Yeah, it was completely life-changing for me. I do in a way feel that I made the conscious choice to come back to my, to my human form. Um, I feel like I had an option. So I think that was deeply transformative as well. Like, okay, I'm here. I decided to be here. So now what am I going to do with the rest of my time? And then I think other mystical experiences of just like sense that near death experience, being able to kind of sense and I don't know if I'd call them angels or energies or what they are, but being able to like have communication and witnessing things that were unexplainable. And yeah, like just having an open eye into there's more than this physical realm. Again, I think that's kind of the commonality between all those experiences is like being able to have a glimpse into what is beyond our physical senses. And that's led me to being a mystic of just, yeah, not of knowing that I don't know anything and of being just completely fascinated by the mystery, the great mystery, the great unknown and what it means to be here and what what it means to be alive. That's really, really beautiful. It really it reminds me of this quote by Osho where he says, courage is a love affair with the unknown. You know, mm, and, and it's, okay. it, it's interesting. We have this very, very narrow slice of time that we see life from that perspective. And, and it takes these mystical type of experiences in order to broaden that space so much. And all of a sudden, like we're, we went from living in this sort of 3D existence to, I guess we would consider it maybe 5D, where you're able to see your past, present, and your future all at the same time. And so you mm-hmm. feel this like feeling of comfort and love and knowing that you're always taken care of. There was this guest that we have uh, had a while back named David Ditchfield, and he wrote this book. Well, he wrote this book. The book was about his near-death experience. He got pulled underneath the train, and he died. 
And when he came back from his near-death experience, he suddenly was able to paint really beautiful pictures. He was suddenly able to compose music, and he'd never, ever composed music before. And this was somebody that was just a regular, regular dude that was trying to find his way in life. And once he had this near-death experience, he came back a completely different person. So there's something about the mystical state and the the near-death experiences that almost seems deliberate and intentional. It's like maybe we chose prior to reincarnating here that like there's going to be a certain period of time where the light flickers on for a second. God intervenes and says, okay, have all this information, and now I'm just going to like show you a little piece and then bring you back into the world. And that just sort of lays the groundwork for, gets the gears rolling for your entire, your entire mission. And I imagine that whole thing brought your mission into perspective too, right? Totally, yeah. I think that was the beginning of really developing my mission and getting clear about it and since then have felt very much led by something beyond the self and I love how you say that kind of flickering the lights it makes me think of almost like unplugging from the matrix for a brief second and being able to see like wow this is like a simulation or this is you know this is not as real as it feels kind of gives an ability to take life a little bit less seriously Mm -hmm. or maybe even understand our power our place in life and our ability to be powerful beings. Yeah, just knowing that we're all we're all taken care of. That book, by the way, I don't know why it was a Mercury retrograde thing. The book's called Shine On. If you want to read it, it's a really amazing book. And it's so crazy that you know run into these types, right? Just synchronistically running into somebody that has worked in hospice and someone that's had a near death experience. And there's not, a, I mean, there's a lot of people out there, but the, you know, you don't meet them every single day. So it's nice to be able to connect with somebody that has had that journey, that continues to have that journey, and has a really, really beautiful sort of mission in helping other people, especially sensitive types, awaken. We're all just in this sort of uh, place together, and it's interesting how we all have our own sort of roles in the matrix of where we're at, and we all just sort of like meet our soul tribe and we meet our family as we go along. Just like a a really beautiful thing to have people like you that are doing this work and helping uh, these sensitive types or even just people in general, energetically or spiritually. It's really, really compelling to me that you started off with like a more of like an atheist type of mentality, reading some of like Sam Harris's work, and then you went from that into what you're in right now. And I wanted to ask you, like, what do you think was the sort of determining force in that? Going from your, you know, I don't know if you would define yourself as an atheist during that time, but going from an atheist mindset to what you believe now. Mm, Yeah, thanks for asking that. And thank you so much for the kind words. Yeah, I'm really, I'm thankful that the universe brought us together in this way. It feels like we are um, a part of a a similar soul family. So Mm -hmm. I'm so happy to Mm -hmm. be there. Um, But I, I truly think the mystical experiences were that for me, were the doorway into believing more because I think being a very logically minded person and a very scholarly person and um, wanting to understand with the mind. And I think that's where I had such a connection with Sam Harris's like neuroscience and everything yeah. logical and the things that we can know and things that we can't know and how dare we like assert ourselves into things that we can't know, right? That very scientific um, model. And I think that if I didn't have those mystical experiences that I had to, I had to experience them and it woke me up into, to something more. And there is kind of a mindset of mystics too, of like, I think sometimes it has to happen upon us. Like we, we can seek and I think like seek and you shall find. Like when you seek um, and you truly seek, I think things will be revealed to you 
that you can't you can't pull in you don't do it it's not an act of doing it's more of an act of being and being open yeah. and that opens the door to experiencing more than we can know <laughs> if that makes sense whether you want to call that god or the universe or interconnectedness i think yeah just having that mindset that open mindset and then those things happening upon me which i feel very blessed to have experienced those things because that's really what propelled me forward in life so much um it's definitely nothing that i did myself that's what's really really beautiful I, you know, and I think, I think Sam Harris is, I, I think that I, I remember hearing this talk by Sam Harris where he um, was trying to describe what his mushroom trip was like, right? He had one and he was trying everything that he could in order to not make it a spiritual thing. But there was this sort of tinge in there. It's almost like maybe because he's just a lot of his profession, a lot of his life had to do with him not pretty much being a self-proclaimed atheist and arguing with Deepak Chopra, right? I had this feeling that he is a lot more awakened than we think, but he's just maybe has some reluctance with coming out because then that would go against everything that he stands for now, you know? Maybe yeah. one of these days he'll change. Maybe he'll, he'll come out and be like, you know what? I am, you know? <laughs> yeah, we'll, we'll have to, we'll hope and cross our fingers maybe Sam <laughs> will come out of the closet someday. <laughs> yeah, we need the Sam Harris's in the world, you know, the Andrew Huberman's, all those people. Those are all very, very beautiful things. Yeah, so thank you so much for coming on with us. This is a conversation that can definitely keep going. Wanted to make it about the HSP impasse thing, but you know, we need to have another episode where we talk about the mystic shit. You know what I mean? A lot mm -hmm. of this sort of spiritual stuff is stuff that like I'm really, really passionate about and I love, would love to get your perspective in the future about some of these other concepts as far as, you know, the I am presence and beingness and a lot of these sort of Zen, uh, Buddhist, even Hindu philosophies. So it'd be nice to have you back, but I do appreciate you spending the time with me today to go into all of this. And before we uh, disconnect here, I wanted to let everybody know that you could find Sarah Nicole on Instagram. You can find her at lovepowercreate. That is her IG handle. Go ahead and give her a follow. She has a lot of really great content on there. A lot of really, really great stuff. She is a phenomenal writer, so she knows how to express the inexpressible very well. You can also find her on her website, which she's under sarah-nicole-coaching, period, jimdosite.com. And we'll go ahead and post the link in the actual description of the episode. So if you guys want to go to her website, she has a lot of different offerings on there. You can make an appointment with her. You can book now. And uh, do you have any other call-outs that you'd want to mention as far as maybe some courses that you have available or any coaching or anything like that? Yeah, sure. Um, a lot of the work I'm doing right now, I'm working on getting an online program set up soon, but I do a lot of one-on-one. Um, coaching. I do. I specialize in inner child healing work and shadow work, um, all things empath and highly sensitive, um, learning how to regulate your nervous system, energetic boundaries. So um, I do have a couple spots open for that these next coming months. So definitely reach out to me. You can shoot me a DM on Instagram or book with me on my website if you're interested. Um, yeah, and Eric, thank you so much for having me on today. I look forward to more future conversations with you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Deeply, deeply appreciate it. The next time that we have you on, hopefully well, Jen will be better. We're sending out good vibes to her, but you're a phenomenal person to speak with. She would have absolutely loved to meet you and uh, get mm -hmm. your perspective on a lot of other things because she represents more or less sort of like the divine feminine of our podcast, sometimes the divine masculine too, because she's got a little Aquarius energy inside of her but <laughs> next time we bring her on maybe we can all have sort of a group discussion on you know end of life stuff death 
all the the tough stuff that maybe some people don't typically like to go into. But I appreciate you spending time with us today. I one of these days I'm going to make it out to Colorado, hoping it's going to be beautiful. I've always wanted to go there, to Colorado. Yeah, come on over. <laughs> yeah, I'm sending Jen so much healing energy and loving vibes, and hoping to get to connect with her, hoping her uh, speedy recovery. You hear that, Jen? You're probably listening to this episode right now, just letting you know. I, I, I know you're there. I know you're there listening right now, Jen. We're hoping for a speedy recovery. Everything goes good. Everybody else out there that's listening, stay safe out there. Stay safe. Don't get too involved in the static or the craziness. Just, uh, just like what Sarah said, like hold some space for yourself. Spend some time alone in nature. Allow Source to just sort of wash through your body and just freely flow through life. And of course, continue healing that inner child within and uh, continue doing the work. We're all in this together. We're all going to go through this together. We're going to get out of this stuff together. Anyways, appreciate your time. Thank you guys for tuning in to Buy Nobody's Podcast. You can find our episodes, of course, on all the audio platforms, which is probably where you're listening to it right now. But you could also see the video <clears throat> episode on YouTube. If you guys are on YouTube and you want to watch the video, you can like and subscribe, do all the things. You can find that in the episode description. If you guys have any questions, you can go to our IG as well. We're on Divine Nobody's Podcast on IG. It's where we're going to post some clips of Sarah when all this is over and all the episode is up. And then uh, you can, if you have any questions, you can go to our website, divine-nobodies.com, or you can send us an email at divinenobodiespodcast.gmail.com. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. Thank you again so much, Sarah, for spending time with us today. I hope you have a beautiful day. Thank you. Namaste, friends. Thank you.